I mean, they lived where it had all happened, where people had died, where they had struggled to, to survive. Um, most people had lost family members, often the entire families. They had seen their neighbors die. They may have eaten their neighbors uh, after they died. Uh, yes, eaten. Uh, There's a lot of cannibalism. Uh, and they also you know, burnt their books, their furniture, their window frames to keep warm. What starts here changes the world. Well, I've got to admit, I kind of like it. What starts here changes the world. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. The average American will meet 10,000 people in their lifetime. I was handcuffed to another man from another tribe whose language I did not speak. Don't think. But if every one of you changed the lives of just 10 people, and each one of those people changed the lives of another 10 people, and another 10, 10. We did not know each other. And we could not speak to each other because if we could have spoken to each other, we might have been able to figure out what was happening to us. To every politician who is taking donations from the NRA. It is because America has not invested in its people. Shame on you. And you can change the entire population of the world, 8 billion people. And if we could have figured out what was happening to us, we might have been able to prevent it. If you think it's hard to change the lives of 10 people, change their lives forever. Well, that didn't happen. Here we are. You're wrong. Are you better off than you were four years ago? You didn't know this kid, okay? We did. They're looking for help. We call BS. They're looking for help. They're not looking for more of the same. When people lose their jobs, there's a good chance I'll know them by their names. When a factory closes, I know the people who ran it. When the businesses go bankrupt, I know them. Well, Governor, we also have fewer horses and bayonets because the nature of our military has changed. We have these things called aircraft carriers where planes land on them. When we get enough money, honey, we'll bring you down. Children were saved, and their children's children. Generations were saved by one decision, one person. But changing the world can happen anywhere, and anyone can do it. So what starts here can indeed change the world. But the question is, what will the world look like after you change it? Welcome to Public, to public Access, Access America. America. Let's start in Dresden. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is that man in Dresden? Well, he's an unhappy man. He has wanted to be a secret agent um, all of his life, as long as he can remember. And he was he was waited patiently for his foreign posting, and then he gets posted to East Germany and not even to Berlin, to Dresden, which is just such a backwater. And his job in Dresden isn't even to spy on the East Germans. His job in Dresden is actually to try to work remotely to get uh, intelligence from the West. So he's working with students in Dresden who might have friends in, uh, who are students in Berlin. And his big get in, in, uh, during his entire time in Dresden is buying a 700-page uh, unclassified U.S. Army manual. That's that's all he's managed to do. So he's um, another thing that's happened to him is that he's experienced envy, uh, like I think he didn't expect. And he the fact that he recounted it uh, nearly 20 years later, when he was already a wealthy man. But you know, they got to Dresden uh, and East Germany. Uh, was not 
a terribly exciting or glamorous or wealthy place by any means, especially Dresden, which had been you know, virtually destroyed in the, in the bombings in 1945. So here's this bland city, uh, and um, still he sees that East Germans, ordinary East Germans, live better than a KGB officer in the Soviet Union. They, ha they all have their own separate apartments. They have washing machines in their apartments. They have color televisions. All these things are luxury in the Soviet Union. He grew up in a communal apartment. His parents still live in a communal apartment. Um, he, he's never had a washing machine in the house, an automatic washing machine, uh, that sort of thing. So um, he's a very unhappy man. He's drinking a lot of beer, getting fat, um, and whiling away his time uselessly. And meanwhile, back home, things start happening. As soon as he left the country, the country started to transform, which is something that no one could have predicted uh, because it felt, you know, that era in Soviet history is known as the era of stagnation. It just felt like time had stopped. People were living in sort of horizontal time. Uh, and there was no future, there was no past. It was, things were always going to be the same. And suddenly, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, who's the new uh, central committee, uh, the, the new head of the central committee, committee, the first sort of young person, he's in his 50s, uh, to have th that post in generations, he comes out and says, we need change, we need transformation, we need perestroika, he says that word, and glasnost. Perestroika is restructuring and glasnost is uh, transparency. And it actually begins, and at first, uh, for, for people in the West, it seemed like so much hot air and the, the system really couldn't be transformed. Um, and Zbigniew Brzezinski wrote a scathing uh, uh, book about how the Soviet Union could never be transformed. It could only bring its own collapse on, which, which turned out to be a Prussian book. But um, people in the Soviet Union are completely caught up in the excitement of change. Because suddenly things can be said, things can be done. Things that were unthinkable yesterday are entirely normal today, like having a demonstration in the street, which first people tr sort of try it gingerly and then they see that people aren't getting arrested and, and then all of a sudden there are thousands and hundreds of thousands of people in the streets. And all of that excitement and all of that discussion that is start, uh, starting to happen out in public, like what should the state be like? Should there be one party or maybe more than one party? Uh, and that's a radical idea. Um, all of that is happening back in the Soviet Union and Putin has no way of knowing about it. So we're going to get back there, but let's go just quickly back into a little backstory. The, when I read the books about him, they always say at 16 he wanted to join the KGB. It, it, it isn't until he's 23 that he does, but he walked by the building every day and saw it or something. How much of any of that is true? And I think you say that his dad was actually a KGB agent. Um, his dad was uh, actually in the NKVD, NKVD is, uh, was the precursor to the KGB at the start of the war, uh, at the start of World War II. This is something that's very much part of Putin's personal mythology, uh, and uh, he's, he's peddled the story more and more uh, as time has gone on. Um, we have no way of knowing if it's true. I, I would assume that it's true. I would assume that uh, that he was indeed in, 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 in the NKVD at the start of the war. 
Uh, and the thing about the Russian secret police and the Soviet secret police is that one never leaves the secret police. Uh, once a KGB man, always a KGB man. And it seems that uh, probably Putin's father maintained some connection to the secret police throughout his life. One sign of that is that they had a telephone. Uh, and people didn't have telephones in uh, in the Soviet Union in the 1950s. Uh, very rarely would a communal apartment have a telephone, and never would somebody have a personal phone inside a communal apartment, which is what Putin's dad had. So um, he was possibly on active duty. He was possibly in what's called active reserve which is uh, what Putin himself uh, was for a little bit after he returned from Dresden. But it's basically when somebody doesn't have, when the KGB doesn't have a job to give you, but they keep you on the payroll and you keep coming back and sort of uh, snitching on whatever workplace you're actually in. When you talk about a communal apartment, maybe you could describe it. And I know that as a as a boy, he liked to play in the courtyard. This is the version of it that some mm -hmm. people tell us. He liked to play in the courtyard and define himself. He was a slight boy, but judo and other things. But it was a kind of rough and tumble right. world, I gather. Could you help us understand that? So communal apartments, especially in St. Petersburg or Leningrad at the time, um, were this very weird uh, uh, thing. So um, uh, St. Petersburg, under the czars, had been a grand city. It was a planned city, and it had um, there were all these Parisian architects who had been brought in to build the apartment buildings in the center of town. So they, they had uh, these vast, lavish apartments that um, were broken up uh, in uh, after the revolution, in the in the first few years after the, after the 1917 revolution, so that uh, the rich were either exiled or or killed or imprisoned, or in some cases just forced to occupy one room out of what had been seven or fifteen rooms in this communal apartment. So Putin grew up in one of those apartments that had been two generations before he was born had been opulent but now was dilapidated, uh, and uh, Putin was born seven years after the uh, World War II ended. Uh, during World War II, Leningrad was under siege for 900 days. It, a million people died of starvation. At least a million people died of, star of starvation. Um, and the city itself was constantly shelled. And one, uh, one wonderful Russian writer who, uh, who did an oral history of, of the siege had this phrase that it's like uh, living in St. Petersburg after the war, living in Leningrad after the war, was like if soldiers had never left the, the trenches after the war ended and just continued to live there. I mean, they lived where it had all happened, where people had died, where they had struggled to, to survive. Um, most people had lost family members, often the entire families, they had seen their neighbors die. They may have eaten their neighbors uh, after they died. Eaten? Uh, yes, eaten. Uh, There's a lot of cannibalism. Uh, and they also you know, burnt their books, their furniture, their window frames to keep warm. So there were these, these were these buildings that, that had been shelled that had been disassembled, disassembled by their residents so, uh, for firewood um, that, that were being heated with these uh, tiny little wood, wood burning stoves, that one per room sort of thing. 
Um, that's where uh, Putin was born in in a town in, in a city that was still scarred in all these different ways. It was also a period of extreme poverty throughout the Soviet Union. Um, basically, people were always on the edge of of of, of uh, subsistence. So food was scarce. All goods were scarce. There was also no childcare. Uh, people worked six days a week. There was there was no state subsidized childcare. There was uh, there was no retirement. Uh, retirement benefits were introduced for the secret police in the 1950s and for everybody else much later. So children were basically left to their own devices. Uh, uh, Putin's parents worked pretty much around the clock. Uh, his mother, various unskilled jobs, his father at a factory. And um, he was left to his own devices. He hung out w in the courtyard with other boys like all children did. And he was often picked upon and bullied until he started studying sambo, which was a Soviet version of, uh, of, of martial arts. History in the making, 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 history in the making.